0: It is my distinct honor to introduce our guest today at our podcast, uh, Zorana Antonijević. Zorana is an expert in gender and gender studies, and she earned her PhD from University of Novi Sad in gender studies. During her rich working history, she worked for multiple organizations, such as Fund for an Open Society, Gender Equality Institute, Canadian International Development Agency, as well as for OSCE Mission to Serbia, among many others. She's an author of multiple publications in English and Serbian and she was directly involved in activities related to drafting, adopting and implementing the National Action Plan on UNSCR 1325, that is the resolution of United Nations Security Council, called Women, Peace and Security. Without further ado, Zorana, I welcome you to our podcast. We have so many topics to cover, but I would start with something very broad. Why are gender studies and feminism movements significant today? And why are they gaining momentum in recent years?
1: First of all, thank you for inviting me for this podcast, Milos. And maybe for your uh, audience will be interesting to learn that I'm coming from Serbia, that I'm based in Belgrade, and that most of my professional uh, life and also academic life, my focus was on Western Balkans and, of course, Serbia. And this is a very interesting question and I think very timely because broadly and around the world, gender studies and feminist movement are not only that are gaining momentum, but they also experience sort of a backlash through so-called attacks on gender studies and feminist movement, that they represent some sort of gender ideology. But figures all around the world Especially figures of gender inequalities in three or four more, most important domains show us that gender equality and their theoretical part uh, represented in gender studies and uh, their activist part represented in feminist movement are still not achieved around the world. For example, when, you, when we look at the most important domains, as I mentioned, such as economy, politics, but also violence, and we can add, uh, for example, uh, care in it, we can see that figures are really appalling. For example, if we look at the Global Gender Gap Index, that is, um, indicators has been collecting uh, since 2006. By World Financial Forum, they represent basically a huge gap, gender gap in financial and economic sector and life. For example, these disparities continue to represent a major area of concern for working women and uh, and their children. For example, when we look at the global gender gap index in two thousand twenty one. The wage gap, the world wage gap, and the wage is understood as a ratio between earnings of women and men in similar position, also something that is also well known as a gender pay gap. It's still approximately almost 40%. So the gap between earnings of women and earnings of men on the same positions are 40%. It's a huge, it's an enormous money that women actually earn, but they are not paid for. And the income gap that is actually all incomes that could also be a wage and non-wage income, for example, pensions, remains over 50%. So this is the gap between between women and men in finance sector. When we look at, for example, economic participation and participation of women at the labor market, it shows that since 2006, when these data were first collected, the increase or increase in closing this gap, financial gap between, uh, economic gap between women and men, increased only 2.4 percentage per year, which means that it will take us another 267 years to close these gaps. If we look at it, the average life expectancy for men and women, this is maybe four or five generations. So five or four generations ahead of us, girls, will still be in a less favorable economic position than than men. Just to compare, for example, these 267 years, in another interesting area that is measured by World Economic Forum in this uh, gender global gap report is uh, education, for example. For education, gender gap is only 14 years to be closed. So it shows that despite the fact that women are, and this is the, the world average, that women are better educated than men, and that women are uh, more enrolled in tertiary uh, university education than men, and that we will very soon close the gender gap in education, still this economic gap is very, is very hard to reach. And this shows us that participation of women in labor market it's important, maybe the most important channel of basically building just and and equal societies. So the the focus of world leaders, uh, policies, laws has to be be, uh, there. And some scholars are claiming that basically this is a result of, you know, norms and, and laws that exist in, in, uh, in some countries that prevents women to enter into the labor market. But there is also one interesting phenomenon, uh, well known as gender uh, segregation at the labor market, which is basically segregation of, between women and men by professions where women are uh, seen as uh, more, under the quotation marks, appropriate for jobs such as uh, education or care, which is basically less paid or low paid sectors uh, and occupations. Also, when we see, for example, shop assistants, or women working in uh, lower positions in financial uh, sector or women working in a lower position in uh, health sector um, and so so on and so forth. So basically it's not only these normative and legal barriers that prevent women to work. One of the root causes of uh, inequalities in economics is, is basically how the economics as a science consider values of uh, work and and basically how economics is blind to unpaid uh, and care work uh, done by women. Of course, there is some attempts done by feminist economics to somehow explore the issue and to put care work, reproductive work at the center of economic interest uh, so to speak and i think that the covid pandemic showed to us how much we rely on as a societies all of us in a world how much we rely on care work not only care work uh, done on the front lines of fighting uh, pandemics such as, for example, nurses and other essential workers, also women as, a, as a cleaners in hospitals and, and other, and other uh, facilities, but also how basically we depend in a household on a care work because when the institutions are closed, such as school, kindergartens, elderly homes, different type of institutions that actually providing care work This is basically something that shows us how how many unpaid work is done by women also in the household. And this is something that is well known as a gender care gap. That basically it's something that we can also measure right now, thanks to the numerous feminist scholars that invested a lot of time in basically writing about uh, about this topic. For example, some of the figures, uh, when we're looking at the EU population, which means uh, 27 uh, EU member states, it shows that 92% of women in EU are regular carers, which means that they provide at least one form of unpaid work, at least several days a week, comparing to, for example, 68% of of men. So these figures show that in spite of the strong increase in female participation in the labor market, in recent decades, gender role uh, persists to be those as a primary uh, carers, which of course Affects uh, their uh, participation in the labor market, but it also affects their participation in politics. For example, some more figures. For example, that those women that are involved uh, in unpaid care on a daily basis. It is still uh, figures related to uh, European Union. They spend three point almost four hours per day on, on this on type of uh, activities, such as childcare, long-term care for elderly or disabled, and housework, which is almost two times higher than hours um, dedicated to the same, same unpaid jobs in a household done by men. And we are talking about the dual earner uh, families, which means that we are talking about families where both women and men are fully employed at the official labor market. So this unpaid, unofficial care work is just something that, that, they, uh, that women do extra. And as I already mentioned, this is something that prevents women not only to be fully engaged in the a, in a labor market, but also to be fully engaged in politics, which we know is extremely important area where decisions are made, where governance of local communities, but also national states are uh, defined, different kinds of policies, laws are are adopted. So it's extremely important that all these governance and and laws and and policies have a a gender uh, perspective or to include uh, basically needs and concerns of women and men uh, equally. So for example, the, the same gender global gender gap report that I mentioned showed that uh, relatively faster progress of uh, women's participation in politics has been shown between 2006 and 2016. So this decade has shown a relatively stable and, and, and fast progress in you know, women's participation in political life. But the average score for global women's political participation, this gap that is measured, is still more than 20%. And as a result, we can say that we will need another 145 years to completely close this gap and basically to have equal number of women and men in politics, which is, as I already mentioned, maybe two or three generations of uh, women ahead of us. So it's not a very bright picture in terms of figures and position of women all around the world. Of course, some regions are better than others, but uh, when we talk about in average, and this is something that feminist movement actually brought to agenda, these uh, transnational concerns over women's human rights globally. So it's not only local politics, it's not only local position of women, but position of women globally. It shows to us that this overall global gender gap in all areas that are measured, which means health, education, political participation, participation in the labor market, will be closed in, in 135 years, which means that we need, again, uh, three to four generations to totally close this, this gap. If we continue to do it in a pace that we did did it before, unfortunately, as I mentioned at the beginning, there is a Strong uh, backlash against gender equality all around the world. There is a strong movement that consider extremely important to return us a hundred years back in the in the history, diminishing the role of women in politics, in contributing to the uh, to economy and of course uh, putting women again in the household and not in a private and not in a public sphere
0: right so you you brought up so many interesting topics with all the figures and all the statistics even though they are not optimistic in a way but uh, as you said i think it kind of depends from which region to which region and what is the focus of the certain studies Uh, for all of our fellow podcasters zorana and i share some history together i was her student actually at uh, my masters and i never i never saw it this way but we often talked about the gender dimension of things so and uh, i think it was you who said once you put these gender glasses you cannot unsee it and it's true once you really start looking the start looking at the world in a gendered way you kind of really see all the differences there are as you mentioned there are gender dimensions to politics to economics to to labor markets so is there gender um, dimension to certain issues such as issues of peace and environmental protection? And if so, how does the lack of representation of women influence those areas?
1: Yes, thank you, Miloš, for this question. It's an extremely important question because I, I think that the environmental protection or, as some scholars call it, environmental justice, not only protection, but this is something that is justice that we seek to, to, be, to be given to the nature uh, like it is given to the human rights. And also, and closely related to that, security issues are extremely important. And of course, that they have a gendered dimension. Some scholars claim that future wars, but also some of the ongoing conflicts around the world will be around and over basic resources, natural resources that we we have. We we are familiar with wars that are fought around, for example, uh, oil. And this is something that is well-known and explored topic in international uh, relations and international security studies. But some scholars claim, and especially feminist security studies scholars, claim that future wars and future conflicts will be around water, for example. This also, uh, environmental justice and environmental protection also changed our perspective on what security means for average person, for uh, women and men all around the world. Uh, That the security is not only absence of conflict, absence of war, but that the security is also access to natural resources such as clean water, clean air, clean soil so that uh, people can uh, can be engaged in agricultural activities and so on and so forth. Across the world, especially in Western Balkans, we have witnessing a rise of social movements, grassroots movements around uh, exactly that, environmental justice and environmental protection. As we can see uh, similar engagement of women in, in peace building and peace, uh, peace movement uh, during the s uh, in Western Balkan region. So we can say that this is something that is e- emerging. At the same time, it's not something that it's new in feminist movement women's movement around the world actually started as an anti-war movement uh, started as a peace movement and the movement against atrocities in first world war and the second world war so we can say that that basically it's not that uh, women are are not only vitally interested in in topics of peace but actually that there are active agents, active contributors to the, to the peace on a grassroots level, on a community level. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they are not so present in, uh, in a peace negotiations right now around the world. Although some studies done on uh, peace agreements showed that uh, women's participation increases the, pro- the probability of peace agreements lasting at least two years after a uh, signature, in 20 percent. And their probability for peace agreement lasting 15 years is 35 percent if women are involved in um, peace negotiations. Women are important to to be present and to have strong influence on negotiation processes, because we can see that then this. Peace agreements could last could last longer, but unfortunately, that's that's not the that's not the case. Still, we live in a world where conflicts and negotiations around conflicts are uh, so called men's area or men's business, where women are mostly excluded from. And uh, the similar things we can see. Um, uh, that are going on in, in so called uh, environmental issues. Although, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, we can see that uh, women's leadership around environmental issues is increasing. So, of course, that both environmental justice or environmental protection and peace building have a gender dimension which is actually also proved by UN adopting uh, Sustainable Development Goals, 17 Sustainable Development Goals, that clearly showed that without gender equality as a, as a leading principle or one of the leading goals, uh, none of these 17 goals cannot be achieved. For example, when we take poverty reduction, when we take into account uh, peace processes or uh, good governance or when we take into account clean uh, water and accessible water resources and accessible land resources then none of these cannot be achieved none of these uh, sustainable development goals of united nations cannot be achieved without gender dimension of course i want to emphasize here that I don't want gender and women to be equalized. Of course, that the gender is more complex and nuanced term than we have now time to to explain. But I also want to emphasize that when we talk about gender and women, we always have this uh, intersectional dimension on our mind that not all women all around the globe are the same and that they have the same position. Of course, that the race able-bodiness, sexual orientation affects, uh, additionally affects their position in the society and also their position in um, security or their needs when it comes to security.
0: It's very interesting that you mentioned that, but I'm also interested in one more thing, like a quick follow-up about the women's participation in the army. What do you say to a lot of naysayers who just say, okay, so... We cannot have women in the army or it's, it's more of a man's job. Do you think it's like this historical narrative is kind of repeating right now? Or do you think we kind of moved a little bit towards more pragmatic stance where we, we say, OK, women have an important role in the military and let's keep them and let's enhance their abilities?
1: I think that the both narratives are very active right now even more this uh, other narrative that we need uh, women in the army that the military as such, has to open to other minorities, including women, because of uh, many reasons. One of the reasons that this uh, stated is this operational efficiency, that the army itself will better perform the duty, their job, and so on. Feminists uh, and feminist scholars, they don't have unified approach, a unified perspective on, on this some feminists, especially those coming from peace movement, they claim that the participation of women in army is actually just another trick to add women and steer that the, the, their, the very presence of women or other minorities, for example, uh, race minorities or sexual minorities, will never change the very nature of army which is basically to, to kill. And the essence of this job is to kill or to be killed. Yeah? So basically that is, that is one position that is very vocal in a feminist moment. The other position is saying that something that we call gender mainstreaming or inclusion of gender perspective in, uh, in all aspects, including the aspects of security, that the presence of women per se could affect internal changes within the institutions such as uh, army for example the changes could come in the way how conflicts are done right now in a, in the modern world that doesn't demand any kind of physical strength or or battles, so to speak, on ground. It's more, it requests more technological or intelligence skills, so to say. And uh, of course, these skills are are equally present in women and men. The other argument is that military as such is more and more helping uh, local population both in their national states, but also across the, the, the borders, to fight exactly what we mentioned uh, in your previous question, to fight uh, climate changes, for example, and to build sort of resilience towards the, the climate changes. For example, women in uh, army could be very active in informing in training other women or part of the population how to build resilience towards climate change. For example, how to swim, because it shows in many, many reports that uh, these big um, catastrophes all around the world uh, with floods and uh, cyclones and everything affected women more than men because they are not swimmers. And things like that. So the, the, the changed nature of army can influence on better acceptance of women in the military. On one hand, on another hand, can also change the role of military itself in one society. So not to be seen as a force that are protecting one population from another external enemies, another population, but actually the ones that are uh, helping their own citizens to to better adapt, to better protect themselves and to respond on their security concerns. So this is something that, uh, for me, a valid argument to showcase that uh, presence of women in army really changed something. Of course, the institution as institutions remains to be very patriarchal, very hierarchical in, in its nature. So I see it as a process. So as many minorities and different groups we have in a, in a, in a military, in an army, I think that the, uh, the better response we will have to security needs and threats uh, 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 of citizens.
0: Basically, this domain of high politics is really interesting because it showcases us how these big structures such as military can affect women or vice versa. So um, in that sense, that is very important. But also when we put the uh, examination to regular people, in your response to my first question, you actually mentioned something that I really want to address, and that's COVID pandemic. And we've all been witnesses to the fact that now gender-based violence is really on the rise now that women had to stay more in their homes and didn't have any possibility to go out due to the curfews or other measures imposed by governments all around the world. So what do you say uh, about the the rise of gender-based violence during the the COVID pandemic? Since I've heard that every crisis kind of increases all the differences between people and especially men and women. And do you have any information how much that costs globally uh, to governments all around the world?
1: Yes, you are totally right. Uh, the COVID pandemic showed that all these inequalities that exist in a world are now somehow deepened or, or somehow widened not only across uh, gender, but also across other dimensions such as race or disability or um, sexual orientation. Globally, based on UN Women studies, it is estimated that around 800 million women have been victims of intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence. At least once in their lives, which means that the measurement is usually uh, from age of fifteen and older, because uh, under the fifteen at the age of fifteen, we have other figures showing prevalence of violence against the girl child, which is again higher than against the male child. The same survey shows also that the main perpetrators of Uh, intimate partner violence or non-partner violence are, uh, of course, men. And that consequences on communities, societies and also wider states are enormous. It's not only that that violence is costly uh, when we look at it, for example, from the point of view of that many of women that are victims of intimate partner violence or gender-based violence are not capable for work anymore. So that their recover, both psychological and physical recovery, lasts many years and costs a lot of money. But also that services for uh, victims of gender-based violence, are also cost money, and usually money invested in these services are very very low, at the level of uh, of uh, states, comparing to how much violence costs. For example, one study done in two thousand sixteen estimated that costs of violence are. trillion U.S. dollars so the equivalent of 2% of global gross domestic product with the global GDP. So 2% of global world GDP is uh, basically basically costs of, of violence which at, the t- at, the, at that time, in 2016, UN women compared to the size of, for example, entire Canadian economy. So, for example, uh, another study uh, for European Union showed that the estimated costs per year of gender-based violence are 110 billion euro per year which the majority uh, costs are related to physical and emotional impact on victims. And we usually tend to forget that direct victims are, of course, women, but indirect victims are children. So, for example, when we have situations of femicide, which means that the violence Ended in killing a woman. Then we have the whole families, children, sometimes grandchildren, left to be taken care in in social services or or by the by the relatives. So the costs are enormous, both for the victims but also secondary victims. Then we have loss of earnings. An abscess for work, which is approximately 11% of these 110 billions of euros. And I forgot to, to say that, that uh, these costs that are relate, related to physical and emotional impact is uh, around 50% of all uh, costs. And then we have costs related to providing different services, financing different services for victims, which is services in healthcare care sector, uh, social welfare, justice, including police affairs. So these costs are approximately 40% of the total estimated costs uh, of uh, gender-based violence. So these costs are enormous, and yet the percentage from the overall budget allocated for direct services, for serv- specialized services for victims of domestic violence is very low. So, for example, costs in this uh, 110 billions of euros, these costs are represented but a little bit more than 1%. So it shows basically a big discrepancy between these financing these specialized services for uh, victims of gender-based violence, such as, for example, shelters for victims, SS helplines, support centers, counseling. That counseling has to be uh, confidential, has to be professional, has not to be uh, intimidated by the victims or to victimize uh, victims again. So these are all very, very limited costs that are allocated for this kind of services, which of course shows us that gender-based violence is still something that is not seen as um, as important, as something that affects societies on a long run, that these effects of uh, gender-based violence are across-generational in terms that they're spreading across uh, generations. For example, some studies shows that uh, children that are victims of family violence are tended to be victims or perpetrators themselves later on in their adult lives. So there is a, a lot of lot of issues here that still has to be explored, researched, but also as soon as possible implemented. As you mentioned, COVID pandemic, Made that even more visible, even more terrifying, if I can say. For example, in 2018, a world study showed that one in seven women experienced physical or sexual violence for an intimate partner in the last 12 months. But these Figures we know that are bigger right now, thanks to the COVID pandemics, as you mentioned, because of the restricted movement, social isolation, economic insecurity, loss of jobs, and basically historical vulnerability of women uh, to the violence uh, uh, in home uh, all around the world. So there is no difference between. um, more uh, developed or, or less uh, less developed uh, countries. For example, in this uh, study on um, so-called uh, shadow pandemic that one of the, the UN women representatives used when ex- explaining increase of violence during the COVID-19, said that um, only 52 countries out of almost 200 countries that exist in the world, integrated prevention and response to violence uh, uh, against women measures in their COVID-19 response plans, which is really it's one-fourth uh, of, of all countries in the world, which is really a very, very low uh, number. Uh, However, it's a little bit encouraging uh, fact that 121 countries adopted measures to strengthen services for women survivors of violence during this um, uh, global crisis. But still, it is something that uh, relies more on an external uh, support, external help, help from uh, different donors than coming from the state uh, state budgets and coming from the uh, basically well-taught actions so I think this is something that uh, caused a lot of concern all around the world that cause a lot of demand for giving voice to victims and really on one hand showing showcase number of or percentage of women that are affected by gender-based violence. On another hand, uh, seeing and and looking and hearing their needs and give them give them voice. And I think one of the best examples in a world of this kind of dual response towards shadow pandemics on violence against women is Me Too movement that actually provoked. Uh, women all around the world uh, were victims or who are victims of any form of violence. and we know that violence against women has many, many forms, starting with psychological uh, and uh, and ending uh, in physical in physical violence, to speak up about their experience and somehow to showcase, the proportions of, of the problem. And I think it is extremely important uh, to hear them and, and to support them and uh, really to, to try to, to grasp the hidden numbers of uh, gender-based violence behind these brave and, and courageous women that uh, speak up about their own experience.
0: Right. I really like the term shadow pandemic. It's going to stay with me <laughs> for a very long time, I think, because it kind of encompasses all the, everything that happens, especially to women now during the this global pandemic. And I like how you mentioned the uh, Me Too. It's very important to address to our fellow podcasters that violence is not only, as you said, physical. It spans from mobbing at work, from verbal violence. It can go on and on. And sometimes even the institutions don't have any mechanisms to help women who are in need Uh, but if we take the things globally and say okay yes there is a problem that we face as a civilization let's say and it is gender-based can we say that there are some uh, mechanisms provided by the UN apart from for example United Nations Security Council resolution 1325 uh, and apart from the fact that gender is integrated into SDGs, are there other mechanisms that kind of help us address these issues and any global, any other global initiatives taken by the UN, for example?
1: Yes, uh, thank you for this question. This is a very interesting question because um, we've, we've seen that this momentum that the UN uh, uh, try to grab this uh, momentum that happened with, uh, for example, basically commemorating uh, twenty-five years uh, since Beijing Platform for Action or uh, twenty years uh, since um, UN Security Council Resolution uh, thirteen twenty-five. So. 2020 tend to be a big year for a women's movement and uh, gender equality all around the world because of these uh, significant anniversaries. But the pandemic happened and everything slowed down and the focus was uh, really to, to provide immediate uh, support to uh, women all around the world and to be less festive and more uh, responsive towards the crisis. But still, also the 2020 was used somehow to, to draw some lines, to take some stocks and to see how we can mobilize especially new generations of women's rights activists and active ed- and gender equality advocates all around the world how we can take their vision of better world uh, into account and how this vision corresponds to something that older generations of feminists and gender equality advocates had uh, 25 years ago and that's how the whole campaign generation equality, realizing women's rights for an equal future started from this idea that, as we mentioned, as violence is transferable over generations, that equality, and that the ideas of equality and just world and, and especially world where women and girls are safe has to be also transferred uh, from one generation to another, especially because it was seen that at current rates of progress, more than 2.1 billion women and girls will live in countries that will not reach any key gender equality targets by 2030. So 10 years ahead, I mean, despite the sustainable development goals, still Almost over two billion women and girls around the world will not live in a, in a world that is better, better for them. And that's why UN, through this Decade for Action on Gender Equality, they proclaimed Decade for Action on Gender Equality in 2020, And uh, the whole event, Generation Equality, was kicked off in uh, Mexico and culminated a couple of weeks ago in France, where governments around the world dedicated themselves to achieve certain goals within certain time frame in in their countries. These uh, goals are different. For example, these goals cover uh, six critical issues in gender equality. The first one is, of course, gender-based violence. Then, as I already mentioned, these 200 and something years of achieving economic justice and rights for women. Then, extremely important issue of bodily autonomy and sexual and reproductive health and rights that are under the attack all around the world. Again, extremely important issue that we mentioned, which is the feminist action for climate justice. And two uh, issues that are... Equally important, it's an issue of technology and innovation for gender equality and feminist movements and leadership. I think that this uh, issue of technology and innovation for gender equality is extremely important because technology is not always working in interest of women and gender equality. On the contrary, technology can widen and deepen this inequality gap that exists between women and men, but also rich and poor, white and black, many, many other aspects and intersectional inequalities. So I think this is is also very important. So generation equality is um, something that is ahead of us, something that is collective, multi-generational action of uh, human rights and gender equality activists all around the world. And on one hand, it includes grassroots feminist uh, movement, but also, also government. And we are witnessing here some sort of sandwich strategy where basically UN as a, as a global system are pressing governments from above and grassroots feminist movements are making pressure from, from bottom up. So let's hope then, then all these six critical areas, if not to be resolved in a 10 years' time, at least to be reduced on a minimum in 10 years' time so that, that women and girls, but also men and boys around the world can live in a more just and, and equal society.
0: Thank you for this answer. Uh, I think just for um, clearing up, I think I, that was my responsibility to do, but I didn't do it. The Resolution 1325 that we, uh, that we mentioned already is a document provided by the UN Security Council that is obligatory for all the governments in the world. It deals with women, peace and security, and it's very important. And Zorana was participating in an uh, action plan in Serbia, how to implement it. Second point I wanted to say is that I like the name and generation equality. I think we are the new generation that should bring this equality and push this agenda forward. And yeah, I think it's very important. Everything that we talked here is very critical for our future. Especially when I remember what we talked about um, very often during my studies was that gender gender equality doesn't benefit only women it also benefits men. So I think that's a very important point. And yeah, with this, I would uh, like to finish on a very light note. But also, I kind of invite you if you have any uh, last comment, any input, any advice maybe for people who are listening to us. Yeah, if you have it, it would be nice to, to hear something from someone who is an expert in this field.
1: Well thank you Milos for giving me opportunity to to talk about uh, things that are very close and dear to my heart both in terms of my everyday job but also my my academic interests and and research that I'm doing in my country. I don't have advice I have because I know also that younger generations sometimes do not like to receive advice. They like more to explore themselves. And but one Piece of let's say it, wisdom that I want to share with you is that you try to learn on our mistakes, which I think that younger generation of feminist women and feminist men are cleverer than we are right now. That they they learn on our mistakes, and that world is changing. I can see that on on your generation that more and more men are not only involved in gender equality work, but they see gender equality as something that's, that is an integral part of their, of their gender identity. And I think it's extremely, extremely important. And as you said, we have to work together and we have to work with others that are less fortunate than we are And especially never, never forget that we live in a world that is under threat, that we have to keep nature, not only for ourselves, but also for for the generations ahead of us. Thank you for inviting me. It was really interesting.
0: On behalf of Jugendwerk, the Ava Wittenberg, and our project cohort, and me personally, I really thank you for taking the time to speak to me about these issues. I hope we will have some other um, opportunities to work together and kind of discuss other topics because gender studies are really big C and um, I can see the C behind you actually and all the books which I think are related to this topic. So once again, I thank you for this opportunity to talk to you and for taking the time and I hope we will see each other soon.